Would you join me in standing for the reading of the scripture? Scripture tonight is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening. How are we? It is good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. It's my privilege and honor to get to open the word with you and for you this evening. And so if you're not already there in your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark and chapter 10. And if you have a Bible with you, um, or if you use an app on your phone or whatever else, you want to keep that handy because we are going to jump around a bit tonight, certainly more than we ordinarily would, but just want to draw attention uh, to that now so that you can be ready. If you've been around uh, Disciple Search for any length of time, one of the things that you've probably noticed is that expository preaching um, is a central tenet of what we believe we're called to. And so even if you didn't know that it was called expository teaching, you probably um, realize that that's, uh, that that's what it is. Expository preaching by its nature means that we pick a book of the Bible and we work our way chronologically through it, section by section. And there's a whole lot of reasons that we are ultimately convinced that that's the best way for a church to uh, approach the scripture and to approach preaching. It's really our bread and butter um, here at Disciples Church. But the main reason that we do that is because it limits our ability to get on hobby horses. And it also limits our ability to avoid difficult texts. And so if you've been here with us certainly last week and then again this week as well, we are yet again on to another difficult passage of Scripture. But the question is this, if we are ultimately uh, called to proclaim the whole counsel of the Word, if that's the charge that we've been given by Scripture is that all of God's Word is profitable, that, that we're to adhere to it, that we're to understand it, that we're to gather our doctrine from it, our belief systems from it, if all of Scripture is valuable, then we must necessarily preach and teach and understand all of Scripture. And so when we come to difficult passages of Scripture, we need to do it with humility. To seek to understand where we as individuals or as a society have allowed the world, rather than the Bible itself, to determine our morality and our actions. 
And so in the text we're looking at this evening, Jesus continues his difficult teaching on difficult subjects. Last week, if you were with us, we addressed the reality of hell from the end of Mark chapter 9. Not an easy topic to hear or to talk about, not something that we particularly enjoy thinking about, but this week we come to a text that is in many ways more controversial, and that is the teaching on the heartbreak of divorce. There's likely no one in this room, regardless of your station of life, regardless of your age, there's probably no one in this room who hasn't encountered the heartbreak of divorce on some level or another, either in your own life or in the lives of those that are closest to you. And over the last decade of ministry, one of the things that I've had occasion to do is sit with a lot of couples and a lot of individuals who've found themselves in incredibly difficult points in their life and marriage. On more than one occasion, I've sat with couples who said, hey, I know we don't know you. We called you up because we saw that you were a pastor and we wanted to get your advice because we are going to go see a divorce lawyer, but we wanted to make one final stop before we did that. I remember particularly at, I think, 25, the first time I had that conversation thinking, I have no idea why you're coming to see me or what you think I have to offer other than what I know from Scripture. But the conversations that I've been able to have with people over the years about this topic of divorce are interesting because people come from all different aspects and all different perspectives and all different experiences. Some people come to those conversations having moved to the conclusion that divorce is the only option. They've moved through that, uh, to that conclusion slowly and painfully. They've exhausted all other options that they're aware of and they come to the final conclusion in a heartbroken manner that that's the only step left to take. And others have made that decision, in my opinion, rather glibly, without any real thought to what the Bible might actually intend for them. I remember a conversation with one couple in particular who sat down with me and on conversations both with the husband and the wife separately and then together had kind of expressed the difficulty that they were having in marriage. They had talked about the frustration that they'd had, the angry arguments, the difficult conversations, the fact that they didn't see eye to eye, they'd had different experiences, there were relational issues that were going on underneath, underneath uh, all of this, uh, all of their uh, relational tension that kind of acted as just a backdrop for everything. And And so she had shared with me that her desire was to be away from him, that she was no longer happy being with him. He told me that in the span of the time that they were working through their issues, he had gone out and found another woman that made him happy and that he intended to now divorce his wife in order to pursue this new relationship. And when I asked them both individually and together what they thought God would want to say about their respective plans, their answer was, I think God wants me to be happy. And I had the task over the course of several hours worth of conversation of informing them that God never intends for us to violate our vows or his commands in the pursuit of happiness. And that conversation with this particular couple ended with each of them finally admitting honestly and openly that they knew that what they were doing was against the will of God and they did not care. And that is a terrifying place for anyone who claims the name of Christ to find himself. And as I walked away from that meeting, the words of Proverbs 14, 12 came to my mind. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
And in the case of divorce, the death that occurs is not the clean break, the clean heartbreaking break of a burial, but rather it is the reverberating pain of a shattered relationship. And lest we think that our Christian faith precludes us from that kind of heartache, divorce rates among self-proclaimed evangelicals is nearly as high as it is for those outside of the church. And that is where we see such wisdom and beauty in the response of Jesus Christ to the Pharisees. Because what Jesus realized and ultimately addressed is that divorce is ultimately a symptom of not understanding God's design for marriage. And so my invitation to you as we look at what is certainly a difficult and and certainly a controversial topic within some circles is first, understand that you are not here this evening on accident. That in God's providence, he has allowed you to be here, he's directed you to be here, whether you're a a, a regular attender of Disciples Church or whether it's your first time with us, he has brought you here for a particular reason, to teach you, to expose you to something about his word and about his character and about his nature. And so even as we look at this text this evening, my, my encouragement to you would be to listen with a humble heart. Because there may be some who are still relatively young in their marriage who are who are still experiencing the bliss of marriage and maybe haven't experienced difficulty or pain and they presume, therefore, that that sort of pain is never going to come. But listen, no one gets married with the intention of divorcing. And yet divorce touches countless families. So my encouragement is to be humble enough to recognize that there may be dangers ahead that you have not yet experienced. And likewise, topics like this can unearth deep feelings of regret and guilt. And understand that the very same Jesus who spoke these words is the same one who provides radical grace and forgiveness for those who trust in him. So my encouragement to you is press into him if your heart grows weary. And we're not gonna be able to get into all the details of this topic, but we'll try to get an overview and we're gonna start right at the beginning, Mark chapter 10, verse one, here's what it says. And he, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now Jesus is leaving Capernaum where he had been ministering to the disciples. He's been spending time just with them in this portion of scripture that we call the great discipleship discourse that runs from Mark chapter eight through Mark chapter 10. This is the time where Jesus is investing into his disciples. He's pouring his ministry into them because he knows that his his death is pending. He knows that it's just around the corner and so he wants to train the disciples in what they're going to need to continue on in ministry after he faces his death. And so for all this time, he's been interacting with the disciples, he's been away from the crowds, and now finally, he gets back into the crowds. He's leaving Capernaum, he's heading back down towards Jerusalem, and along the way, people hear him, they they, they see that he's coming down the street, and crowds, once again, immediately begin to form. And what happens every time crowds begin to form around Jesus? The Pharisees show up. Verse 2. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Following their pattern, the Pharisees come to test Jesus as soon as his public ministry 
starts. They're looking for one more way to discredit him. They're looking for one more accusation they can levy against him. They're looking for one more way that they can somehow tie him as uh, as being outside of the religious order. And so the question that they come to him with is a loaded one. And it's one that doesn't always jump out at us when we actually read the verse. Matthew's account uh, of this very same story gives the expanded question that the Pharisees asked, which is this, from Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And And the Pharisees phrased the question in such a way as to force Jesus into a yes or no answer. They didn't want to hear an explanation. They didn't want to diatribe. They wanted him to say yes or no because they wanted him to get caught up in his own words. They wanted him to find himself in hot water. And the reason they were asking this question the way that they were is that the religious community was divided into two distinct theological camps. Some of those in the theological camp embraced a very traditional perspective. They viewed divorce as something that was a unique and rare occurrence in the life of a member uh, of the children of Israel. They, They thought that the Bible only allowed for very particular and distinct allowances for divorce. And others had embraced a more liberal perspective. They embraced a perspective that allowed a man to divorce his wife for nearly any reason. I mean, if a man had grown tired of his wife or if she wasn't performing her responsibilities around the home in a way that he found satisfactory, he could go to the rabbi and and plead his case and get a writ of divorce from him, deliver it to the wife and leave her. And if Jesus embraced in this moment the liberal position, the traditionalists would have dismissed him as a radical They would have said, who is this one who claims to know all about the God of Israel and claims to actually be God himself? Who is this one who would dare to have this understanding of divorce in violation of the Old Testament law? But likewise, if Jesus embraced the traditional position, he would have risked alienating those in the crowd who had been divorced unbiblically. And nothing has changed in 2,000 years. But Jesus was not going to be hemmed in by the Pharisees. And the answer that he gives them is much more focused on marriage than it is actually on divorce. Now, I want you to notice something because Jesus does something here that's incredible and enlightening and that we need to pay attention to. What we find him doing immediately is going back to the Old Testament for his explanation of marriage. In other words, he doesn't take this opportunity to establish something that is wholly new and different, but rather he goes to the Old Testament for his explanation on divorce and marriage and then expounds on it further. And by the way, that is indicative of the way that we ought to think and approach these topics. Because marriage, counter to our world's perspective of it, is not a cultural construct. Nor is it a relic of a bygone era. The reason that we hold the perspective on marriage that we do is because God has made it abundantly clear that marriage is a lifelong, physical, emotional, spiritual covenant between one biological man and one biological woman. And that is a loaded sentence intentionally. But understand that it's not meant as a political screed. It is an explicit description from the mouth of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see in this text. So the reason that we as Christians, as believers, as those that follow Christ, the reason that we have to argue for a right definition of marriage and the reason also that you ought to fight for your marriage personally 
is because God is the creator of marriage. He gets to define it. He gets to define its purposes and its uses in our life. And we don't get to redetermine for ourselves what marriage ought to be for us. It's already been defined perfectly by God. And Jesus reiterates that in this passage. Look what he says in verse 3. He answers the Pharisees not with the yes or no that they were looking for, but with a question. And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. I just want to stop right there because Because what Jesus is saying is that ultimately marriage is an outworking, an outcropping of creation. In fact, marriage by its necessity is a creation of God. This isn't something that that was created by religious institutions. It wasn't something that was created by culture. It wasn't even something that was created by Adam and Eve. It was actually created from the hand of God. It was his intention and his purpose for humanity. And Jesus begins his explanation here by quoting Genesis chapter 5 verse 2 which says this, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. See, Jesus does not see Adam and Eve as merely figurative representations of God's creation. He references them in literal historical terms. And he cites as the very first foundation for marriage that God created two distinct and complementary sexes with unique anatomical construction and designated roles. So according to Jesus, if you don't start with these two most basic building blocks, you do not have marriage. Regardless of how we might try to define marriage in some particular cultural context. And now from that point, we need to follow the line of Jesus' thinking because all of this connects certainly in his mind and hopefully it will connect in our minds as well. Follow the line of Jesus' thinking because not only does he say that God created them male and female, these two distinct beings, but he created the institution of marriage. And here's what he says, Mark chapter 10, verse 7, he continues. Therefore, because they were created male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. See, Jesus here quotes from Genesis chapter 2. He wants us to see the nature of marriage right from the beginning. And so here's what Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, says. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, God's intention in designing marriage in Genesis chapter 2 is predicated on the idea that as our creator, God knew better than we did what we needed. It's an amazing thing that the very first thing God does in creation is he's creating the sun and the moon and the stars and the light and the dark and all of these things. And after creating each and every one, he says, and it was good and it was good and it was good. And the very first time we see a description of God saying that something was not good, it was when he recognized that Adam was alone. See, Adam wasn't even aware at that point 
that God had something even better for him in mind than what he was already experiencing. But in Genesis chapter two, God delivers, creates out of the rib, out of the side of Adam, creates a woman for him. See, God knows better than us what we need. God has created us as social beings and he's determined that we need a counterpart. And in the creation of Eve, God creates the very institution of marriage. He created man and woman to be complementary beings, meaning that you complete one another, right? Not in the Jerry Maguire sense of you complete me in some sort of an emotional encapsulation, but in the idea that there is a complementary piece. These pieces fit together. They go together. They match. And notice next what he says. He intended for one man and one woman to be together for a lifetime. Look at the language in Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this, of course, is the verse that Jesus is quoting in, Matthew chap- or rather in Mark chapter 10. That just as God designed humanity for physical reproduction... He also created a means for familial reproduction. That a man is to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. That they create a whole new family unit. That before God there is a new authority structure. That there is a new familial structure. That there is a new entity that is born out of that union. And that the unity that a husband and a wife have, that they share, is unlike any other bond we see in Scripture. They become one flesh. And as you start to look at the descriptions of the way that the Old Testament in particular uh, explains what it means to be one flesh, which you realize that on a physical, emotional, spiritual level that there is an actual unity happening. So the, the, the Old Testament Hebrew word for this is the word dod, speaking of the physical relationship between a husband and a wife, and it literally means an intermingling of souls. That when you enter into a relationship with somebody, when marriage has taken place, when you consummate that marriage, that there is, a, there is a mingling of your souls together before God. One flesh, unity. That they become one flesh and that they have such a deep commitment and intimacy that there's no other way to describe it other than as something wholly different than the sum of their parts. And all of this, understand for believers, all of this is a foreshadow, a beautiful picture of the love that Christ has for the church. So in Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse 25, Paul writes and gives this explanation. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Here it is again. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. 
The profound mystery of the fact that when two people who love each other and are committed to one another in the bonds of marriage, when that happens, they become one flesh. And what Paul says is it's a mysterious thing. There's something that happens in that that we can't quite understand. There's something that's happening on a soul level, that in your very psyche, in your very being, something shifts. And he says, and all of it points to the representation of Christ and the church. So the question then for us becomes this, if a marriage is a picture of the love that Christ has for the church, the question we must ask ourselves when facing difficult moments in marriage is how can I emulate the patient, faithful, sacrificial love of Christ? How can I emulate the way that Christ loves his bride, the church? If Christ will never leave us or forsake us, how can we apply that picture to our marriage? And Jesus continues in the second half of Mark chapter 10, verse 8 with this. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So not infrequently, I'll have conversations with people who are, who are considering getting married. Maybe they've been dating for, uh, for a while. They've been seeing each other for a while. And um, I'll sit down and have a conversation with them. And they'll, they'll explain to me kind of where they're at in their relationship. But on occasion, one of the responses that I've gotten from people is, well, why should we actually get married? I mean, we, we love each other. We've already been involved physically. We already live together. We have all the benefits of marriage. Why in the world would we want to go through this particular process of marriage in order to ratify it. Isn't our love enough? Aren't we married in the eyes of God already? And the problem with that understanding is that they are now defining marriage not biblically but culturally. And the element that they have overlooked is actually the most foundational piece of what marriage is. See, when you engage in a physical, sexual relationship and you live together under the guise of preparing for marriage, you are actually undermining the essence of marriage, which is committed oneness. You're saying, I want the benefits, but not the commitment. If things get difficult, I'm out. If I no longer find you charming or attractive or compatible, I do not love you enough to work on and press into our relationship. I'll just try to find somebody better. So in actuality, you're not preparing for marriage. You're laying the groundwork for divorce. You're setting the table. You're setting a precedent that when things get messy, not if, when, I'm out. But when you understand that marriage is a coming together in oneness, it changes your perspective. So let me explain it, explain it this way. When I officiate a wedding, there's a lot of things that I'll have a conversation with uh, the couple about and, and kind of talk about the order of service and what they want to do and what kind of songs they want to have and all those sorts of things. And one of the elements that frequently comes up in conversation is that of vows. People will talk about, well, we want to we wanna write our own vows or we prepared vows for one another. And I'm totally fine with people writing their own vows, but I'm also quite insistent that we also use the traditional vows in the context of their wedding. And I don't do that because I think it's a biblical necessity. I don't do it because I think it adds a particular validity to the wedding. But I think there is prudential wisdom in those vows. Because when people write their own vows, they have a tendency to write about their own feelings, their emotions, particular instances, their wishes, their dreams, all, all good things. But the problem is that feelings and emotions and wishes and dreams 
can all change. But the words of covenant don't. And so when you stand before a minister and you say, I take thee to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Those are promises. They are vows that in and of themselves deny a dependency on situation. What they say is, regardless of what happens, I'm in. You are promising and you are picturing something significantly greater than just your feelings. And notice now how Jesus continues in verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, those are are hard and harsh words, certainly in our cultural context, but I want to explain a little bit of what's going on here without getting too far afield. It's worth remembering as we come to the book of Mark that Mark writes in this very abbreviated sense, and we pointed it out all through the book of Mark that he is frequently saying, then this happened, then Jesus went there, immediately this occurred, and as soon as this happened, this other thing happened. Mark is just giving us snapshots in the moment of Jesus' life. He doesn't write quite to the length of some of the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke in particular. And Mark, in this portion, gives us an abbreviated version of the story. Matthew's account is longer and it's more detailed than the version that Mark or Luke give us. And I think verses 10 through 12 are a generalized summation of Jesus' teaching. Where he's saying this is the general rule of thumb. This is the way to understand it. But we would need to look at all of the accounts in Scripture that address divorce and remarriage to find answers to all of the particular scenarios. And we don't have time to do that. So you can look for yourself at Mark chapter 10, at Matthew chapter 19, at Luke chapter 16, at Romans chapter 7, at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you can listen to the podcast if you need to get those again. But the question remains, with everything that Jesus has said, there is still a question that has gone unanswered. What about the question of the Pharisees? What about the role of divorce? Mark chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, the truth of the matter is that when when the Pharisees gave that answer to Jesus, they were only giving a partial answer. And the part that they were giving was true, but it was devoid of the broader context. And so I want to give you the broader context. Here it is from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. 
So what's happening in Deuteronomy 24? Well, the context of all this is the passage that the Pharisees are citing actually specifies that God made an allowance for divorce in the case of indecency, or you can also read that as immorality. That there was a particular exception given if, in this particular case, a woman stepped outside of the bonds of her marriage. We're told in Malachi chapter 2 that God hates divorce. And we need to make no mistakes about that. God makes it unbelievably clear that he has very strong feelings towards divorce because divorce is necessarily the breaking of the bonds of marriage where he has a very clear picture of his own love at stake. But a bill of divorce was permitted by God because it recognized the particular situation in which a woman would have found herself. I mean, at this time, without a certificate of divorce, a woman would have found herself as an outcast. She would have been unable to provide for her own material needs. She probably would have been unable to feed herself. Very likely in, in this particular time, she would have had to turn to a lifestyle that would have been less than desirable and potentially even criminal just to keep food on the table. But because of the hardness of their hearts, we are told, because of the way that sin takes root and breaks down relationships between husbands and wives, God gave the Israelites specific exceptions for divorce. In other words, God permitted divorce because he recognized the outsized effects of sin on the human condition. And we find a lot more clarity on this when we read Matthew's more in-depth accounting of the story. He records Jesus' response to the same question of the Pharisees this way in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. He says, the words of Christ, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus spends all of this time emphasizing the role and the importance of a proper understanding of the commitment of marriage. And secondly, yes, he affirms the teaching of Moses regarding divorce. And Jesus' answer for us, for you and I in this age is this. Though divorce is permitted under God's law for spousal unfaithfulness, that's Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Hear me on this. His desire and his plan is for marriage to be a lifelong commitment. In other words, we are not looking for reasons to divorce as believers. We are not looking for excuses and even violations of the law of God and violations of marital vows. We are not looking for those things in order that we may be divorced. There may come a time when there is no other option. There may come a time when a spouse files papers there may be a time when there is no reconciliation to be had. But the goal of this text is not to give people the bare minimum bar over which they, over which they must cross in order to get divorced. What Jesus is insinuating and teaching explicitly throughout the course of Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19 and Luke chapter 16 is Christians value marriage. We value it because of the picture that it gives us about Jesus Christ. We value it because of the intimacy that it creates between two people and the created order of God. We value it because of all of the things that we find in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 5. We value it for a myriad of reasons. And so the very last thing we want to do is divorce. The allowance for divorce 
was not an erosion of the commitment level that God expected between a husband and a wife. It wasn't God saying, you know what, I actually wasn't serious about this two people becoming one flesh thing. You know what, take that back and said I'm going to give you divorce and now that's a legitimate option for everybody to take advantage of. That wasn't God's purpose in this at all. What he's saying is, I recognize the destructive influence of sin on the hearts of men and women, and I realize that there are particular instances where divorce may be a necessity, but in every instance, God's will, his desire, his plan, his purpose, his invitation is for reconciliation and restoration. And the reason that I word all of it this way is because Jesus here is not saying that God made a mistake when he allowed for divorce. He doesn't take back the words of God from Deuteronomy chapter 24. But he is saying that for those who recognize the created purposes of God, divorce ought not even enter our lexicon, except in the case of unrepentant infidelity. And I would argue from scripture that even then, God's desire and plan is for repentance and restoration. Now there are all sorts of questions and implications that we don't have time to discuss today. Because there's a, there's a thousand scenarios that people wanna talk about or bring up or what about this or what happens in this situation and look, Wisdom can, can warrant all of those conversations to happen. If you, if you have questions, we'd love to talk to you further about these things. But, but I want you to see the big takeaway because I think this is Jesus' point in this text. And I think we see the big takeaway in Mark chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Those words are probably familiar to everyone in this room, and we understand as Christians that our bodies do not belong to ourselves, right? We get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. If you're here in this room, you were purchased at unbelievable cost, and therefore your life is no longer yours. Your responsibility, your call, your duty, your joy is to follow into willful obedience whatever Jesus Christ calls you to do, but do you also recognize that if marriage is God's creation, then your marriage belongs to him? And let the weight of that sink in. That before anybody starts even discussing divorce, do you understand the weight of that conversation before God? That if in marriage two people become one flesh by necessity in divorce, that flesh is being torn apart. And anyone who's experienced the heartbreak and the pain of divorce can attest to that. There is something internal at a soul level in your psyche, in your mind, in your very being that is ripped apart. Why? Because God joined it together. See, marriage wasn't your idea, and it wasn't the idea of the church, and it wasn't the idea of any culture. It was God's plan and intention. It's something that is affirmed in heaven. Think about that. That when you stood, if you did, before the minister or the justice of the peace or whatever it was, and you quoted those words back to them and you committed yourself, do you understand that there was something 
something much more serious going on than just a civil service. So if you're listening and you're in a marriage that you regret, a marriage that's hard, that's painful and frustrating, do you realize that whatever brought you into that marriage, God now has a divine purpose for it? That if Acts chapter 17 is true, that the places and the times in which we live are ordained by God, that your marriage is not an accident. And that even if what led you into that marriage is something that you regret, that God has a purpose and an intention and a design for it. One commentator said it this way, your marriage is an expression of the glory of God's individual sovereignty. Your marriage is about more than your momentary happiness. And hear that because culture in the world is going to tell you the exact opposite of that. The encouragement to get prenuptial agreements and the encouragement to walk away when things get hard and the encouragement to abandon what God has joined together. This author is saying your marriage is about more than your momentary happiness. It is about God's grand redemptive plan that spreads throughout eternity. That there are things that are happening in your marriage that you won't even be able to see the results of because they will be so long-lasting and eternal. See, when God sealed your marriage in heaven, he knew about the conversations that you were going to have that were going to try your patience. And he knew about the temptations that were going to threaten shipwreck in your relationships. And he knew about the hurt and the pain that sin would bring. And in his grace, he assures us by his word that he will work out everything for his glory and your eternal joy. Unless we missed it, eternal joy and momentary happiness are not the same thing. But the question is, do we really believe that? Or have we become so disillusioned that we've begun to justify thoughts and behaviors that you would have never considered when you were first married? Resist the temptation to scoff and reject the sovereign opportunity in which you now find yourself. And resist the temptation to try to run from the very thing that God may intend to bring about greater sanctification and greater joy. So then what is the answer in the middle of a miserable marriage? To press deep into a savior who was tempted but did not sin. To press deep into a savior who went to the cross to pay for your sin. to press into a Savior who raised from the dead and said unabashedly and assuredly that he would never leave you or forsake you, even in the middle of a miserable marriage. Press deep into the church, the bride of Christ, that was given in part as a support for you and your family. Press deep 
and knowing that both the good and painful moments of marriage reveal to an even greater extent the love that Christ has for you. That Christ loved you when you were most unlovely. That he pursued you when by any human understanding you were not worth pursuing. That he chased after your heart when you had long since rejected and abandoned him. So let's choose to view marriage for what it is. A lifelong picture of how God's divine love for a sinful and wayward people, the same people that Christ came to redeem, trust him and find your rest, your happiness, your forgiveness, and your restoration. In hard moments, press deep. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in your sovereign plan, the text we talked about this evening is not an accident. And Lord, we don't pretend to know who needs to hear words, and we don't pretend to know what it is in particular that affects hearts. But God, we come to you in prayer and confidence that the declaration of your word never returns void. So God, where there is fear and mistrust of you, would you remind folks of your faithfulness and consistency? Where there is anger and bitterness, would you remind of your, of your loving pursuit? God, where there are temptations to leave and abandon and run and hide, would individuals see the invitation to bring out their struggles in the light of the gospel? God, allow us to press deep into you because of your love and your affirmation. God, enable us to do hard things because we know that we have a good God. And would you receive all the praise and the honor and the glory for the things that you do? And it's in your name we pray. Amen.